0: Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve Jay, so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today's guest is Mark Covino, who directed the documentary, A Band Called Death. Welcome, Mark.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So one of the, uh, the great parts of this gig is, you know, occasionally, and I know a lot about music, but occasionally you get led to something you've never heard about, you don't know anything about. You know, sometimes you discover it on your own, but, you know, if a mutual friend of ours recommending your doc to me and i absolutely love this documentary i have to ask you though did you know of this band beforehand or did it start with the film and their story how did this movie come about
1: i had no idea that they even existed what happened was um it was around 2008 maybe a friend of mine who was a cinematographer asked me to come help him on a music video that was being shot some like poppy punk music video and it was this director that went to our college but he went on the years that I didn't go to that school, but I had heard of him and I wanted to get into music videos. I was like, all right, yeah, I'll come help you guys out. And that director was Jeff Hallett. And We immediately like hit it off. I mean, he was like bald headed and tat sleeve. So he looked all badass and I'm a metal head. So <laughs> there weren't a lot of metalheads in Vermont <laughs> and uh, more punk and, and hippie stuff. We just started talking about horror films and then kind of went into rock and roll and heavy metal. And then he started telling me, know i've I've been friends with these guys for 20 years and they're three black brothers from detroit michigan who made proto-punk music back in the early 70s and i'm gonna do like a 20-minute documentary on these guys and uh he asked me if i would be a cinematographer (laughs) (laughs) and and i told him no (laughs) because i had just come off of a three year long hip-hop documentary i was trying to make and it was very agonizing and soul-sucking and i didn't want to do docs anymore i'm a narrative filmmaker at heart but after two weeks of sitting on my butt in my office and not doing anything, I I looked at an email that Jeff sent me that night, and uh, it had the New York Times article, which told the story, and it had two tracks that the band had released online, uh, Keep on Knocking and Politicians in My Eyes. And when I read the New York Times article, I couldn't believe what I was reading. To me, it was like the greatest rock and roll story in my generation. And when I played Keep on Knocking, I fell out of my seat because mm. it, it was... Such a perfect song. It was a very familiar sounding song, but I had no one had ever heard it. (laughs) Like I always use this analogy and maybe I piss off music people, but it was like hearing the Rolling Stones paint it black for the first time. And I'm the only person that's listening to it on the face of the earth. And that's (laughs) what it felt like.
0: So how did you get involved in the doc? Did your friend stop making it?
1: So Jeff, when he approached me, like I said, he wanted to do like a little 20-minute thing and have me be a cinematographer. And once I looked at his email after blowing him off for two weeks. I realized this is much bigger than a short film and, and much more important. And I told him, I called him back immediately. I said, "You're crazy. This is a feature-length documentary. Just follow my lead." Because he had never made a documentary before, he was clueless. And basically, like I, I became the co-director, and we just went out and started doing it all out of pocket. Really, we didn't even raise money.
0: <laughs> wow, wow. Well, as you know, you know, making and especially the funding of documentary films is not easy. Um, I'm sure it's even harder when it's a band that. Very few people have heard of. How did you accomplish this? Was it all out of pocket and just on the run?
1: For the first year and a half, it was completely out of pocket and it killed us. Uh, I almost had to file for bankruptcy. I wasn't working. I was just working on the film. Jeff worked a nine to five. He was like an IT guy. And so he was mostly committed to that. But we were working together. Like we would talk about the interviews I was about to go out and shoot in Detroit and yada, yada. Eventually, like we just hit a wall. He ran out of money. His wife was threatening to divorce him. I was about to file for bankruptcy. He called me up one day from work. And it was a really sad conversation about talking about abandoning the film or quitting the film. This is like nine in the morning. And I was like, all right, whatever, man. Like, we'll just do it like hoop dreams. Maybe it'll take eight years. (laughs) And then literally two hours later, a friend of mine started frantically texting me. How come you didn't tell me Scott Moser was all about your movie? Blah, blah, blah. For those that don't know, Scott Mosher is a big Hollywood producer. He produced all of Kevin Smith's movies, starting from Clerks on up. And he also produced a, a little film called Goodwill Hunting, oh, <laughs> which won some go. Oscars. That night, the same night we talked about quitting the film, we got on a conference call with Scott and he said he liked what he saw. It was it was a trailer I put out in, I guess, online. Like I put it on YouTube so that people could see that we were making the film because at the time, at the beginning, there was a huge hip hop artist that was claiming he was making the film on them and it, hmm. it created a lot of friction and confusion. And so we just wanted to be like, no, this is our film. This is what we're making. And Scott somehow saw this a year later.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, I say, I, I had never heard of the band. You had never heard of the band. Other Steve here had never heard of the band. But some people had, and, and you start off the movie with some people like Questlove, Alice Cooper, Henry Rollins, Kid Rock, and they all offer up their love for this band in the in the intro. And that's a pretty diverse crew, but how, how did you find and reach out to all these people who knew of the band, or did they reach out to you?
1: When we, uh, even before the producers, the Hollywood producers came in, our main goal for making this film was to reach a wide audience so that the world could learn about them. And to do that, I came up with the idea of we need quick little just like sizzle at the beginning of very famous people that know of the band. Because we knew people were talking about them here and there. We had heard, you know, Kid Rock mention it somewhere. Elijah Wood, who's like probably the most shocking for people. He's a DJ and a record producer. He was in Burlington with his girlfriend and spinning the 45 before no. the New York Times article came out. So we had known about certain celebrities out there that knew of the band. And our intention was never to make them a big part of the movie it was just to be like listen like it's kind of known in the underground that this band exists and it was all because of that 45 right right <laughs> but nobody knows the bigger story and and that's when we jumped in i think the first celebrity jeff and i got on our own was jello biafra right like jeff just flew me out to san francisco and that was a pretty wild day just in and out getting jello we filmed an interview with Chuck Treese, who's a famous skateboarder, and, and he's in the band McRad. but he didn't make the cut of the film, unfortunately. And I think that's all we got on our own. We even tried getting the hip hop artist that was claiming he was doing a doc on them, but he blew us off in a very rude way. <laughs> but uh, eventually, once Scott came on board, he brought in his buddies, and they were the ones that found the money to help finish the film. Once they got involved, then they asked me if there were any like names that I wanted. And I was like, I have a list. (laughs) And it had everybody from famous artists from Detroit, it didn't matter who they were, I didn't care. I wasn't being political with how we picked, I just wanted fans of the band. And that's kind of how we came down to our list. Like some people just wouldn't get back to us like Iggy Pop, we tried our best, we tried for like three years and got nowhere. But the people that are in the film were legitimate fans and excited to talk about the band.
0: Yeah, it's a diverse crew. So, you know, I've got a bunch of questions for you. But give our listeners the dime version of the band. Three brothers from Detroit.
1: The story is uh, three African-American brothers from Detroit, Michigan, who in the early 1970s started playing what is essentially proto-punk music, (laughs) uh, predating the Sex Pistols and the Ramones by about six years. Actually, they started in the 60s, I should say. They didn't even start in the 70s. The album came out in the 70s.
0: Yeah, they have a fascinating backstory, too. Uh, You know, their father was a minister, tragically died trying to help somebody in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And that event dramatically altered the band's direction, right?
1: Yeah. You know, they obviously, when you have somebody close to you die, it sets in depression and and all kinds of things. They tried to look at it in in a brighter light. The whole death and rebirth thing was very big with that family. And instead of dwelling on it, they wanted to use it to inspire them to do something bigger and grander. And very much influenced the name of the band Death. It sounds negative, especially back then in the seventies. Trust me, it was very negative. <laughs> but to them, it was a positive thing. This is a time of celebration, not a time of mourning.
0: Yeah, it's hard to wrap your head around. And uh, David Hackney, who was the leader of the band, he he was had a vision, and both mm-hmm. the name and you know some logos and stuff in the direction of the band. And so he his brothers buy into it and work very hard. David had a very curious, funny way of picking a label that they wanted to get involved with. Can you tell that story?
1: Uh, yeah, he, uh, he took a phone book and, and nailed it to the wall. And he just took a dart and he <laughs> opened it to the whatever section would have music labels and stuff. and he Just threw the dart. Whatever that dart landed on was what they were going to try to go for. And
0: That is so punk rock.
1: And it landed on Grooseville Records.
0: Right. And and Grooseville was associated with one of Michigan's oldest and Detroit's first independent recording studios. And, you know, the site of several world-changing musical moments, so it paid off.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. They got to record their music at United Sounds. I mean, amazing.
0: Yeah, I did some research on that and a uh, very cool studio, and I'm sure that helped them move forward as a band.
1: I tried my best to get inside to get footage and it was locked up, boarded up. At the time we were filming, a lot of Detroit was in pretty bad shape. It's kind of on an upswing these days, it seems. It's, you know, art's coming in and they're cleaning it up. And and United Sounds, since we shot the film has now opened up into a museum so oh wow i missed my chance but (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. yeah there is a lot of classic footage and the the rhythm section brothers take you on this tour and everything's locked up and they're standing outside talking about it and saying so this is where It, it was a whole different scene for sure um so set the time period here when their demos are circulating what was going on in in popular or rock music at that time
1: um i mean it was you know especially in their part of the town people were just into things like earth wind and fire and you know i bet disco was getting pretty big and really like they just their own community just didn't like what they were doing there was people like the mc5 out there and and again the stooges those people were doing their thing but they were doing it in opposite sides of the the city that the band wasn't doing their thing in and so they didn't get noticed at all and and you know, got the cold shoulder from their own community, which is a real bummer because they didn't want to do earth, wind and fire music. They wanted to be right. loud. You know, they wanted to right. be fast.
0: Right. And you've got some great footage of the the o- older women next door who, who complained. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they took it all in stride. I, I did some really great uh, moments there.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they just played in their, <laughs> their second floor upstairs bedroom is where they played. I mean, their mom must have been a saint to let them do that. <laughs>
0: No kidding. Uh, And Bobby, who's the bass player, uh, he says in your film about the name, he goes, I know what I would have done. No, I don't want to hear it if it's called death, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious.
1: (laughs) Oh, David was the only one that was 100% on board with that. (laughs) He had a vision and um, his brothers trusted him, but they didn't like it. They knew that that was going to cause issues.
0: Well, they, there was a, a family saying, right, about getting behind each other. Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah. Stand behind your brother. Yeah, Stand yeah. behind
0: your brother. And they, both those guys mentioned that throughout the whole thing, even, even with his name that is, is fairly hard to reconcile.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the film is not about them being the first punk rock band at all. Like, people assume that just from the outside. To me, what makes them punk rock is their attitude and their integrity and sticking to their guns and basically just not compromising for money.
0: I'd agree with that because the the music I, I heard a little MC5 in there a little you know that Detroit thing yeah it, it was crazy Detroit can be the home to a lot of outsiders did you or do they consider themselves outsiders?
1: They did for sure. I mean, Bobby specifically would do would have conversations with me about how his own black community just hated them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they couldn't get anybody to listen to their music. They didn't play shows even. They played one show. It was at a Masonic temple and like two people showed up. Oh, the, the only shows that they could do were in their upstairs bedroom or in their backyard. They would maybe have some friends come over and just be like, well, that's funny music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they definitely felt like outsiders. Um, it didn't stop them though. That's what's no, no. weird. You know, all these people just tell them, yeah, I don't like that music. They were like, Oh, fine. Like we're going to keep playing it.
0: They were persistent. It's unbelievable. And, yeah. and the name, you know, the name certainly, Seemed to be a turnoff, and to labels especially, and you know most notably Clive Davis, who would later go on to Arista and all these other big bands. Mm-hmm. He said he'd take the band if they changed their name, and David's reaction was,
1: "He said tell Clive Davis to go to hell." <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, from a preacher's son, that's that's pretty good, you know. And uh,
1: it's amazing to me. It's just you know it was going to be like a twenty thousand dollar contract or something. But again, like David just stuck to his guns. He's like, no, the band is called Death. This is my child. You know, I'm not changing the name of my child. And that was it. Like, like Clive was going to sign him, but that was the end.
0: <laughs> yeah. And his brother's reactions were definitely. Uh...
1: Oh, they were in shock. Yeah. They're beside them, So they thought their brother was crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I forget which brother it was, but one of them that you interviewed, he was just like shaking his head, and he's like,
1: "Oh, yeah. Dennis, specific, yeah." He was like, "Man, I would have changed my name in a heartbeat."
0: <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's hilarious. So the brothers form the rhythm section, and you know, after certain number of, well, we're not interested, especially with that name. They took a hiatus to visit friends in Vermont, where mm. you know you spent some time, and that was kind of that for Death. You know, they formed a reggae band, right?
1: Yeah, actually, the, the lineage of that was there was a family member who lived in Vermont, who actually was part of a cult,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and they they went and lived with them for a little bit until they were like, "Wow, this is weird," and they got away from them. But they ended up just planting themselves in Burlington. They were still death. They had one album, one single come out in Burlington called North Street, hmm. and it's a really heavy song. It's their last heavy song, and they put flyers up all over town with the triangle symbol. The triangle is a big part of their, I guess, uh, image. If you watch the movie, you'll know. And all the local police thought they were like a cult member. <laughs> so yeah. they, they saw all these triangle signs all over town, this band going around, you know, playing this heavy music and they tore down all the signs. Nobody in, in town really took to that one single. And so they became a religious rock band, which is, I think also somewhat ahead of its time, like three black guys creating a religious rock and roll album in the late seventies. And That didn't do well. They got a lot of bad criticism from the local press for that, for being religious. (laughs) And that's when they decided, well, let's just be a reggae band. Like, you know, we got the dreadlocks now. (laughs) We can do this. And David hated that. He didn't like it. He argued with them. And that was the end of his association with his two brothers. Bobby and Dennis went off, created Lamb's Bread, which did really well in Vermont. They even helped create the reggae fest up there. And David went back to Detroit. And it was a pretty sad time for, for David Hackney.
0: Uh, Lambsbred, I do remember. And I can even say there's a good chance I saw them because that would have been my first four years of college here in Boston. And and they were a band that played around here all the time. And I just recently listened to a compilation of New England reggae bands that they were on. I was like, oh, my God. And then I watched your movie. I'm like, oh,
1: cow. They're really good. Every single one of their bands was really good. Even uh, the Fourth Movement, the Religious Rock Band, it was really good music. I have a photo that. We didn't put it in the movie, I don't think, but it's of Lamb's Bread when they were huge on stage with a little band that nobody cared about called Fish.
0: <laughs> uh, some classic Vermont bands there.
1: It's so funny to see them as like teenagers standing behind Lamb's Bread. <laughs>
0: that is good well so you mentioned david's reaction to lamb's bread he he didn't care for that yeah he moves back and you know unfortunately his journey here on earth is not for long after that right
1: no no he um i think he was tortured by the lack of success with his music he did make one last album with his brothers under the name rough francis um it was an alias oh right and it was kind of like a country rock album. There's two tracks on it. It's a really great song on that album that we put in the movie. That was it. He pretty much just kind of worked job to job. Couldn't keep a job. He fell into the bottle, smoked a lot. Eventually ended up getting lung cancer. And so it was, it was pretty sad. I mean, he did get married and they tried to make it together. But David always made it hard for her <laughs> uh, with his depression. <laughs>
0: You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Mark Covino, the director of a band called Death. It's a fascinating uh, movie on several different levels. One of the linchpins of the movie and where it kind of pivots is before he died, David told his brothers to hold on to the death tapes. Someone is going to come looking for them. People will want to hear this. And he was right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. That's the part of the story that really uh, just makes it so unique is um, he came up to Vermont, I think it was in 2000 to go to Dennis's wedding. And that's when he told Bobby about that. He's like, I want you to take these and just keep them, you know, the world's going to come looking for it. And Bobby thought he was crazy. So he just threw them up in the attic. He didn't think of any, anything of it. (laughs) It's just whatever, man, like nobody's going to want this, this crappy music we made. (laughs) And shortly after David passed away and, Again, Bobby didn't really think much of it. Like years passed, and then just one day in like 2007, I think ish, it was one of the sons, Bobby's sons. Bobby has three sons, all musicians. Four sons actually, um, but three of them were musicians and fell into punk rock music without knowing that their dads were into this music. They knew their dads as reggae people. <laughs> and one of their sons was at a punk rock party in some basement in San Francisco. And somebody played a song that sounded just like his dad. And he's like, what the fuck? He he looked at the album and it said Hackney on it. He's like, this is my dad. And so he called his dad up. He's like, dad, you never told me you were in a punk rock band called Death back in the 1970s. And his dad was like, well, I told you we were in a rock and roll band. (laughs) And that was the beginning of it. Like, It just kind of spiraled out of control from there.
0: It is a, a joyous story. I mean, you know, they discover it, and I think one of them even discovered it via the internet, the single that you were talking about, the seven-inch single, which, you know, was going for a lot of money at the time. Yeah. And they get involved in it. And you mentioned Rough Francis, which they adopt as a band name, right?
1: Yeah. Like, as soon as they learned about their dad's music, they wanted to know more. So, they, you know, they went to their dad's house, listened to more music. You know, the 45, like you were saying, was going for like 800 bucks. I mean, it was ridiculous. And uh, eventually, like, the sons were like, well, we got to play this music. Like, we can do this as a punk rock band, a contemporary Mm -hmm. punk rock band. We could play these old songs and bring it to a new audience. They named themselves Rough Francis in honor of David Hackney and did a show at this place called The Monkey House in Winooski, Vermont. And a reporter from The New York Times was at that show. (laughs) And and, uh, he saw it and was blown away by it. And he wrote this, like, full page spread in The New York Times that kind of told the story of everything leading up to that moment. And that's when it really blew up. That's when the world started getting an idea of who these guys were. And then in the case of the 45, just by chance that people were finding this thing over the years, people like Jello Biafra and Kid Rock or whoever, what happened was in the 70s, they owed money to this guy, this friend of theirs named Don Schwenk, and they couldn't pay him. So they gave him a crate of the 45. <laughs> because you know they're like well just take these and and sell these and if you make any money any more money than what we owe you just you know give us whatever pennies come in he's like all right whatever he waited until 2000 to bring that crate to a record store right. and so that's the whole reason why people have even heard the band is because those little 45s that didn't even have the full album just had the two songs they, they just went out into the internet and people made copies and it ended up on a punk rock compilation which is what the sons heard in san francisco and it's like a domino effect.
0: Well, it, domino effect indeed. Especially, you have some footage of of one of the fathers watching them perform with his, mm. you know, wife, and they both just start yeah. crying. I mean, tears of joy, obviously. But it's just a very a touching moment to see this whole 360 degrees in a way.
1: It's insane. I mean, you you can't write this stuff. <laughs> it's <You> really <laughs> insane. I mean, it's just the the music and the family. It's just it's all family. It's all yes. connected. Yes.
0: And that comes across loud and clear in the movie. And eventually Drag City Records gets involved and the record finally sees the light of day,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the guys, Robert Maness, uh was one of the people that I, I think he bought. The, it's been a while. I think he bought the record on eBay or something. It was like 800 bucks, mm-hmm. and brought it to Drag City. And, and they were like, yeah, well, if there's a full album, we'll we'll definitely release it. So Robert Manis contacted the band and the band had a full, you know, they recorded a whole album at Grooseville. They just never released it. They only right. released a 45 because uh, that all fell apart after the Clive Davis thing. Hmm. You know, they're like, yeah, we have a full album, but why do you guys want it? <laughs> and eventually, uh, like, Drag City convinced them. They released it. And It came out in 2009, I think. Not too long after that is when the band decided to maybe reband, find a new guitarist. Who they ended up using uh, Bobby Duncan from Lamb's Bread, and they started touring that year as well.
0: And he was just overtaken with the music, which is why he joined, right? Because it was something very different from what he did. And yeah he he said I have to learn this to show David proper respect, and mm. and he was he was really good.
1: Yeah, that music hadn't been played like live with the band since the seventies. It was a very moving moment when Bobby and Dennis first heard Bobby Duncan play a song with them. They could just feel like David Hackney's spirit with them in that room.
0: Yeah. And speaking of his spirit, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure if it's your movie poster, which was really good, but the album cover, wasn't that David's work? Like the one that eventually came out, was it the original things that he had sketched out or something like that?
1: Um, The original thing he sketched out is on one of their second or third albums that they released after okay. the first album the first album all the artwork is actually done by Bobby Jr the son from rough Francis wow it's that famous death font you know that he has on there Definitely. I took that and I made an entire alphabet out of it
0: yeah I love the poster that advertises this movie it fits so perfectly into once you've seen that
1: oh yeah with the three of them yeah the three guys and that was that was a photo that Bobby senior's wife took when they were traveling from Detroit to Vermont Wow yeah, they, they got kicked off the bus for having some substance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hmm, dreadlocks in Vermont. What's the... <laughs> how how long did it take you to make this movie? I was going to ask you if there was ever a point that you thought of giving up, but at the very beginning that happened. And, you know, I'm curious because one of the key things, especially if you've never come across this band, is there's a lot of their music in it. Was it difficult to secure the music rights?
1: Oh, that wasn't difficult. Um, I think... We paid maybe like five grand to drag city who then owned the music and you know that gets to the band eventually right right. like that was never an issue we always knew because they they weren't signed to a major label or anything it wasn't going to be hard like even having the hollywood producers at the beginning we didn't see any funding for finishing the film and that was a really hard time i mean like like i was saying before scott Mosier came on board we were about to quit the film right scott was kind of like this angel that just like, I'll help you guys finish it. And he brought in his friends from a different company and they went out and looked for months and months and couldn't find anything. And then eventually uh, one of them was friends with this guy named Jerry Ferrar, who played turtle on entourage and, and he wrote a check and that was it. Like we had finishing funds Wow. with his one check.
0: Wow. That's awesome.
1: But it took about three to four years in total, which seems about the amount of time it takes me to make my films. <laughs> At least it takes me to make my films with no budgets. <laughs>
0: Let me ask you this. What did the brothers say to you about the movie? And and even their kids, you know, who now have pushed that music to another generation. I think that's one of the fascinating stories is that no one in the brothers generation really heard it. And now they have. And now mm. the kids have taken it forward. But how did they like the movie?
1: We did our first screening for them at St. Michael's College in Vermont uh, at a screening room. Because in the movie, you could see Dennis Hackney as the a janitor there. And so we, oh, right, we right. told him, we, we have a rough cut of the movie. We want to show it to you guys. We need a theater to screen it at. And Dave was like, oh, I've got one at St. Michael's. So the whole family came and we sat down and, and Jeff and I, my co-director, were so nervous. We were shaking because we were, we didn't know what they were going to think about the movie. And we, we also like, you know, we made our movie. We didn't want them to tell us to change anything, <laughs> you know, but right, right. if they wanted something changed, we knew that we would have to do it because it wasn't meant to be a vanity piece at all. Like it was meant to just tell their story outside of their lives. As the credits started rolling, Jeff and I kind of got up expecting them to like clock us or something. He's so pissed off. And Bobby was standing right next to me, he just grabbed me and hugged me as tight as he could. And he was crying. And he's like, Thank you so much. You know, I can't thank you enough for doing this for us. And um, it was just very appreciative, very loving moment. I mean, we're family like now. Like right, it's right. It, we're beyond just working together on a project. It's, I hear from them every now and then. I call them up. We always check in on each other.
0: I'll be honest with you. I, I I was guessing that was the reaction because there's a lot of those moments in the movie where you can see into them as, as people and how, yeah. you know, both loving and appreciative and all that kind of thing they are uh, through all of the hard times and through the things they've had to do. And it's, it's so nice to see some sort of karmic payback, you know, and yeah. the movie is certainly a big part of that. Let me ask you one last question. Actually, two last questions. You know, I'm sure there's it's a a hurdle with people not knowing this band and the name of the band. What would you like the big takeaway to be for people that view the film?
1: Uh, Just always keep your eyes and ears open for not just music, but any kind of artwork that's out there that might not be getting recognized. It's amazing how much is just hidden in an attic or hidden in a garage. And nobody knows about it until it's discovered 35 years later. There's so much great art out there still yet to be discovered. So just be aware of that. And also, I mean, you know, everybody's got a different family situation, but, you know, try to you know be kind to each other, be loving to each other. I mean, what they were able to do as a family is so inspiring to me to stick together and, and to fight for each other always. So I, I don't know. I guess I, I don't know if that's a great answer. but That's a,
0: that's a perfect answer. And it's a great movie. I, I hope everyone listening will go out and see this. And you, are you working on any new great pieces of art or movies?
1: I, uh, I, I did move from Vermont to Georgia for a big music documentary. I can't talk about who it's on, but it's on an iconic performer who is a musician, an actor, um, voiceover actor, radio host. Uh,
0: well, that's a, that's a good tease.
1: The list goes on and on. Very inspiring person, very influential person. And um, unfortunately it's, it's, it's been a six year journey and I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but that's what I'm in Georgia for.
0: <laughs> okay. If it happens, we'll see you again here. Okay.
1: Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I'd love to come back and talk about it.
0: This has been Mark Covino, a band called death, a really fascinating and uplifting movie. And uh... You know, I want to thank you for joining us and, and we will try and spread the word and everyone should see this it's, it's really one of a kind
1: thank you for having me
0: All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast Series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network